Best Book Bits podcast brings you Jamie Lutz, a workplace cultural anthropologist, drawing on his extensive experience in organizational development, culture, and leadership. Jamie is a noted speaker and a facilitator with expertise in the disciplines of organizational cultural change, customer loyalty, and employee engagement. Author of the book, Pathway to Purpose, Big Ideas for Fueling Irresistible Corporate Cultures. Jamie, thanks for being on the show. Michael, it is fantastic to be here. I've been looking forward to it. No problem. So for people who don't uh, know who you are, uh, give us a little bit of background to yourself. Where did it all start and uh, how did your journey unfold sort of in your early 20s? Sure. So early 20s, that's looking back a little bit, but I'm happy to do that. Um, Yeah, back in my 20s, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina, uh, Shelby, North Carolina, and um, had always been real passionate about sports, and particularly basketball. And coming out of high school, I wasn't good enough to play at a collegiate level, um, but I knew that I wanted to go to a school that was really well-known for basketball. And so I, uh, I, full transparency, applied to only one college. Good thing I got in, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who's known for their uh, the Tar Heel basketball team and Michael only missed one, I think one or two games in four years and I had the flu or something. So that kind of paved the way for me uh, deeper into my uh, post-college years to to end up doing an internship with the Orlando Magic, but begin to kind of understand that you can actually do something with your life that brings you passion. Yeah. And um, I want to sort of unpack what you're doing as a uh, working with Orlando Magic as a as an intern for the for twelve months and also working as a, a bus boy as well, working sixteen hours a day, uh, busting your nut, and um, yeah, how how it all sort of that that particular culture led you into where you are now, which we'll unpack as well. So, can you talk about sort of the early days, uh, working those long days and long hours as well, and how that sort of trained you for? Um, to where you are now. Yeah. So, you know, coming out of college, I decided, you know what, I, I love the game of basketball, not able to, and I, by the way, I tore my ACL in high school. And at that time, it was really difficult to come overcome that injury. Um, so I wasn't, knew I wasn't going to be playing basketball, but wanted to find a way that I could be involved um, and sent resumes out coming out of college uh, for internships with all the NBA teams Ended up getting an internship, an unpaid one, for the Orlando Magic, who at that time were had only been in the league for a couple of years. Um, and at that time, Shaquille O'Neal, who I think most people know who that is, um, was just um, coming on board as a rookie with the Magic. And um, it it actually changed the the scope of the NBA and the scope of the Orlando Magic, put them on the map, so to speak. Um, and it was really interesting, Michael. I was, as I said, basically working for free except for a small stipend on game nights. And on non-game nights, I was working at Quincy's, which was a steakhouse chain, serving big fat yeast rolls. Um, so that, that was an interesting time of my life. I was absolutely um, exhausted, but the interesting thing was... I was absolutely inspired and in my element. I absolutely love what I was doing. I was a PR, public relations uh, intern for that first year. Um, loved it. Um, and it, it, 
that's when kind of it began to form my thoughts around, you know what, it, it's possible to do something in life that you're passionate about and it becomes more than just work. It becomes kind of who you are and, 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 and what you want to kind of achieve in life. See, I, I think we're all hardwired to, to want to make a difference in life. Not, not just, it's not just about money, it's about meaning. And that was one of the things that really stood out to me. So was able to fortunately uh, begin to do some special project work for the team um, after the internship and ended up staying another six years with them. And that paved the way kind of for my next, um, my next uh, kind of calling with the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. Yeah, thank you for unpacking that. Yeah, I've read the book and uh, it's a fantastic book. If um, people watching now, do you have the book in your hand to hold up? And I, I do. Sure. Interestingly enough. Yeah, cool. So Pathway to Purpose, uh, check it out on Amazon. So we're going to go through uh, the book a little bit. And in Chapter 1, yeah, you talk about your early years, how you worked for the Orlando Magic, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, you're talking, you know, Penny Hardaway, Horace Grant and um, all that stuff. I'm a Chicago Bulls fan, so I remember as a kid in the 90s watching the NBA Finals from Australia on the TV, uh, leaving school to watch Game 7 in, I think, 96. But you talk about you made the Finals in NBA in 95 with Orlando Magic. Magic, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yep, yeah. 94, 95. Yeah, awesome. Um, and one of the things that you sort of discovered in, in the book you talk about is that true magic lies at the intersection of passion and purpose. And this sort of set you up for some of the guiding principles in your in your future um, career opportunities, which we'll get into as well. Um, to talk to me a little bit sort of what happened next with leading the, leading the path and going across to um, – that, that drive and that interview you had with uh, the Ritz Carlton. Can you uh, unpack that a little bit? That was uh, a little Yeah, so, you know, it was interesting. Uh, I, I didn't travel a lot with the team at the time when they traveled on the road. But when I did, and, and in general, the team would always stay at Four Seasons, Ritz Carlton. And at that time, the organization, which um, is still owned and operated by the DeVos family, um, had decided what would it look like if we became a an organization like the Ritz-Carlton that's renowned across the globe. So we began to kind of explore the Ritz-Carlton, meet with some of their senior executives and begin to understand how can we bring that type of aura and panache into the sports arena. Um, and so um, I began to get to know some of those folks and had to let them know hey, if any opportunities ever come up with Ritz-Carlton and the service uh, experience, uh, you know, talent management, that type of thing, I would really have an interest. And with the with the Magic's blessing, I got a call. And uh, at that time, there was a Ritz-Carlton in Palm Beach, Florida, which was a couple of hours from Orlando and or three or four hours from Orlando and um, was asked to be a, or to interview and then subsequently uh, was asked to be their director of quality, which was a senior leader hotel management role that basically oversaw all of the service elements of the of the um, hotel of the of the resort, everything from surveying to uh, uh, service recovery for unhappy patients, uh, training and development around service, et cetera. So, I jumped at that uh, opportunity, Mike, and it, you know, as much as I love working for the Magic, I would say Ritz-Carlton really shaped my passion for uh, exceptional, um, creating exceptional experiences for both 
customers and for employees. It was an absolutely amazing organization. And even post-pandemic, I think they're they're still at a, a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, amazing. And what I got from that in reading the book as well was mainly the interview that you had your first day uh, with with Wolfgang and some of the some of the principles and some of the guiding messages that that he said. And I'll, I'll read some of them uh, just to refresh your memory. But number one, he reminded me that achieving anything in great in business and life requires great commitment and sacrifice. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you learned from uh, working there in the early de- in the early days in terms of their sort of culture as well? Yes, uh, Ritz Carlton. For those of you that are familiar with it, is one of their mantras is "We'll move heaven and earth." Now you may have to you may have to pay for it as a consumer, but we'll do anything that's not illegal, immoral, or unethical to create an amazing, amazing experience for our customers. So uh, it was, it really shaped my concept of what exceptional experiences look like. Yeah. And you, and you talk a little bit about in the book about being an anthropologist in terms of culture. What, what does that mean? Yeah. For me, an anthropologist is really understanding um, the uniqueness of every organization. Um, that That's what culture is really it's the it's kind of the unspoken and um always displayed beliefs and uh and actions of the organization um and and so an anthropologist is really kind of getting under the covers to understand what that looks like and to and to refine it to continue to refine it over time to create an organization that employees find i think um, unleavable and, and customers find irresistible. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about some great principles and sort of some of the distinctions of culture as well. And I'll just mention uh, a few of them while we're here. So one of the, the great things about culture is in especially company culture and corporate culture, determine what matters. Uh, you talk a little bit about, about that. Dodging pain at the expense of purpose, failing to properly assess our perceptions of work, enduring overbearing bosses, uh, prioritizing profit over people. Do you want to expand a, a little bit about on some of those? Yeah, I'll talk, I'll talk a little bit about the dodging pain um, for, for purpose. You know, I think a lot of times as human beings, we want to we wanna do everything we can to avoid pain, um, which is, again, it's kind of a natural tendency to do that. But, but the reality is we've all heard no pain, no gain. That, that's where we actually grow and stretch ourselves and become, the, in my opinion, the best version of ourselves. So if you want to create an amazing culture, um, then you've got to be willing to stretch yourself and never become comfortable with mediocrity or comfortable with um, what other organizations are doing. Because if you stand still, um, you're going to you're gonna, uh, look back and your, your competitors will have already passed you up. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely correct. Um, chapter two, you talk about leading the path and people playing at home might not know the um, story about the Spanish conquistador uh, Cortes in uh, 1519. Um, do you want to expand on that and tell us a story about sort of burning the boats? Yeah, I, I love this concept. When I came across it, I was like, this is really a cool um, kind of mindset, one that needs to be applied in the in the business community. Uh, yeah, Cortes, I think during around the 1519 time frame, uh, was trying to conquer the Aztec uh, Empire, 
and had about 600 or so uh, of an army with them on multiple boats. They landed on the shore, were getting ready to engage the enemy, and Cortez uh, supposedly said to them, before uh, we engage the enemy, I want you to go back to the boats and I want you to burn them. And he was really kind of drawing a line in the sand there to say, hey, we're, we're going we're gonna to achieve success or we're going to die trying. And while it's certainly not that uh, much of a, of a serious issue for organizations, I think it's still very, very compelling that, you know, if you want to be the best, you, you have to be willing to, to give it um, 110% all of the time. And, and imagine what we could do, Michael, if our, if our employees... Um, were willing to give of their um, of their energy um, and their passion on a regular basis, and not just mail it in every day. But they did it because they see the underlying kind of reason for what they're doing, their why, their purpose. If you can align the the individual purpose with the organizational purpose, then you've created a an environment where people will burn the boats, where they will go out of their way. Um, to help you and themselves and the organization achieve remarkable things. Yeah, well said. And uh, just to elaborate on that, uh, in the book you talk about uh, the military mission underscores the importance of senior leadership in any endeavor, including the world of business. The courage and conviction of the vital few set the cultural tone for the larger enterprise. Yeah, um, and you also go to you know great great corporations or great uh, corporate cultures, are f- they're fundamentally seeded, uh, cultivated, and harvested with the C-suite. Uh, do you want to talk about why that's so important and and how, from the top, works down through the bottom sure. as well? Yeah. yeah, I mean, intuitively, I think we know this, but it's easy to forget that I, I won't say, Michael, that it's impossible for an organization to, re- to reach great kind of performance and excellence without top-down buy-in. But it's extremely difficult to do because the, the essence of, of the effort starts with senior leadership, typically the CEO, that has a vision for what he or she wants to create for the organization and is able to effectively cascade that down across, across the company. Um, you know, if, if others within the organization don't see that, that passion and that energy and that desire to serve um, being modeled out on a daily basis, then we can say whatever we want to. Organizations have mission and vision statements all across the world posted in their boardrooms. But in many cases, you can ask employees, what does that vision statement mean to you? They may even memorize it, but it's not instilled in them. It's not become part of their DNA. And so it doesn't change behaviors. That's the responsibility of the C-suite to drive that down throughout the organization and, and to help employees see how their own personal vision and their own personal purpose aligns with the organizational one. Yeah, so that uh, makes a lot of sense. How, is there any tips or any you know, things that employees can do to you know, change the culture from the top? Or is there any tips you could give people that are listening now who are in the C-suite that uh, they could use you know, um, in you know, relatively short time to help create those cultural changes or, or, may, or even start the conversation? Yeah, I think absolutely. If you're not in the C-suite, um, don't despair, right? I mean, 
culture is not just made up of the entire organization. Every department, every team has its own culture. Um, and as a, as a leader, if you have influence on others, you're a leader, you can begin to um, create a culture within your small team, department, uh, division, that um, you would like to see replicated throughout the organization. And, and if others see the passion of your people, um, if they see the alignment between uh, your culture and purpose, then, then others will begin to follow. Now, now if you're in the C-suite, I think the, the most important thing is you have to define what your vision is for the organization. And, and how does what you do um, relate to the service that you're providing for your customers or the end user? Um, because that's why we do what we do is to make a difference. And, and if, if you can, again, cascade that down as, an, as a senior leader, um, don't just verbalize it. It needs to be in writing and it needs to be, become part of your performance management process. It needs to be part, part of your onboarding process. And the overall actions of the organization have to, have to display that each and every day. Yeah, thanks for unpacking that. And I'm going to have a, a little book reading right now. So you give a great example uh, in the book. Uh, there's an ex excerpt about a 1960s speech given by Hewlett Package co-founder David Packard. Uh, further highlights the prominent role of organizational purpose. So I'm just going to read a little bit uh, from the book. He, talk, he talks a little speech about, I want to discuss why a company exists in the first place. I think many people assume wrongly that a company exists simply to make money. While this is an important result of a company's existence, we have to go deeper and find the real reasons for our being. Purpose, which should last at least 100 years, should not be confused with specific goals or business strategies, which should change many times in 100 years. Whereas you might achieve a goal or complete a strategy, you cannot fulfill a purpose. Like a guiding star on the horizon, forever purpose, forever pursued, but never reached. Yet, although purpose itself does not change, it does inspire change. The very fact that purpose can never be fully realized means that an organization can never stop stimulating change and progress. Can you unpack a little bit about that or what that means to you? Yeah, and again, I think it kind of goes back, Michael, to what we were discussing a little bit ago is that the, the purpose of an organization is larger than to just make money. Money, money is an output, um, but it's not the reason that we do what we do. The reason we do what we do is to is for a greater uh, a greater um, extent or a greater purpose than than individually or collectively within the organization. And so, when we look at an organization um, as simply a, a means of making profit, that's critical. You have to do that to keep the lights on. We have to understand the larger picture, though, is around is around purpose. It's it's not just about the money; it's about the meaning. It's about inspiring the hearts and minds, the the logical minds of our people, and the um, emotional hearts of our people. Uh, aligning those two things again creates an organization that that can't help but be profitable, that can't help but be successful, and admired by uh, people far and wide. I want you to talk about 
thing that I'm thinking about right now, what you said is a little bit about silos. So you've got a, a major corporation. Let's say you've got an international conglomerate. Um, let's talk any brand in the world. You, you, you go through some in the book where we're going to jump on purpose statements. But silos meaning, yes, you've got an internet, like the Ritz-Carlton, you've got an international company. They've got 40,000 employees. How, how, how do they differ from other companies where you might have one parent company in another country and then one particular store and one particular team and they're all doing different things? So you're getting a different customer experience wherever you go. What makes the Ritz-Carlton a little bit different in terms of um, they're all on the same page per se in your experience of working with that company? That's a great point. There's a number of ways the organization has successfully done that. Number one is you have to hire people that align with your culture. So the the, the recruitment and the onboarding process for Ritz Carlton is is amazing, um, and you you begin to um, ingest the DNA of the organization from the first day that you come on board. But even before that, the company is extremely meticulous about um, who they allow into the organization. But but nothing works over time if it's not reinforced. And, and I think the reinforcement piece is what differentiates Ritz-Carlton from, you know, 99% of other organizations out there. Um, they repeat um, a list of, of service values, their mission, their vision, um, over and over and over. And the vehicle, one of the vehicles for Ritz-Carlton to do that is their, is their daily lineup. So... Um, regardless of what property you are at, um, every day across every um, work shift, uh, individuals get together within the within the uh, individual hotels, and they they um, talk about what's going on for the day, but then they they repeat and enliven one or more of the service values, and they talk about how they've seen that lived out, what that looks like and sounds like within their particular hotel. And so it's a combination of a, of a pep rally and a, um, a, a re-enlivening of the mission, vision, and values of the organization. And so you get it every day over and over and over. And, you know, and I don't have people, I have a problem with people saying that. A lot of people think it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's kind of um, like a cult, um, but it's a cult of people that are committed to doing better on behalf of their, their customers and, and providing a service that's unparalleled. So I think, just to put it in a nutshell, Mike, Michael, I think the reinforcement of what's important to an organization cannot be overstated. Um, you have to continue to, to um, reinforce those things that make you different. Um, and, and over time, people see that as a second nature it becomes it becomes naturally part of who you are to, to follow that vision the mission and the values of the company yeah awesome uh, some of the notes i took from that and just to repeat what you said was aligning culture and you know having the right uh, allowing the right people to come into the organization i think that's huge i think you know hiring um and hr well hiring first is the gatekeeper to an organization making sure you don't have the wrong people in there not only to poison the culture but 
Yeah, if you get the right people in an organisation, well, you can go north, but if you get the wrong people in an organisation, and I've seen this over my years and, you know, working 20-plus years in the the real world, um, you, can, you can definitely go south or you can just go east or west and sort of go around in circles. Um, you talk about also refinement and re- repeat. A little similar to the army. I mean, any any disciplined, especially the military, you're going to rinse and repeat every single day. You're going to have your shoes shine, your, your bed made. You're going to go through what the mission is. You know, you can talk about the mission. That, And I think that's what they've embraced with the Ritz-Carlton and, and understanding that um, – that, that's really, really great. And service values. One thing I loved about the book about, I'm not sure who said it, but um, I think it was the founder of the Ritz-Carlton said, uh, we serve ladies, uh, we are people that serve ladies and gentlemen by ladies and gentlemen. Did I stuff that quote up? Or you, quote you're up? right. You're right there, Michael. So we're ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And, and Michael, I've, I've been I've been away from the Ritz Carlton, you know, in other uh, in other roles outside of Ritz for many years. But even today, I can still recite um, the the mission, the credo, uh, the employee promise, and other elements of it. It just it becomes part of who you are, and it it really um, is a, a a a driver of of what you do wherever you go. We'll come back to the book. Let's let's go into what you're doing now. So what happened after you left the Ritz-Carlton? What was your uh, next sort of stepping stones in your career? And how did that lead on to what, what you're doing now as well? So do you want to unpack that a little bit? I've been with a number of different organizations since the Ritz-Carlton, um, including the banking sector. So I was with uh, Wachovia Bank for uh, a number of years. Um, and, and in all of these roles, that's part of why I wrote the book is I've been in cultures that get it from a service perspective. And I've kind of played in that customer experience, um, uh, service excellence, uh, talent management type of position. And so I was in with Wachovia for a number of years. Uh, Then I had a second stint at Ritz-Carlton. So I loved Ritz so much. I had an opportunity to come back in uh, in a corporate role uh, serving uh, about 21 of the properties on the East Coast, doing uh, uh, quality improvement uh, teamwork and customer experience projects. Um, awesome experience. Uh, then went with a, an organization that, uh, that did uh, sales and service training. I led up the service training with a company called Force Performance Group. And after Forest Performance Group um, was with a uh, commercial bank here in the Atlanta area, which is where I live, called Atlantic Capital Bank, and oversaw um, customer experience, but also a lot of the um, employee side uh, from a talent perspective, um, training and development, et cetera. And then most recently, and by the way, I've been happy in all of these organizations. It, it, it wasn't that I was looking for other opportunities that kind of found me. And they were things that I was very drawn to because of their culture. So currently with a, a company called ChinMed, C-H-E-N-M-E-D, and it's a an organization that serves senior citizens that are on Medicare here in, in the United States, an, an amazing organization. Whereas in, in our country, most people uh, or most healthcare organizations get paid by the number of services that they deliver. Uh, our company is what's called value-based. We don't get paid um, by insurance companies unless we can show improved health outcomes for our patients. And, and the way that we do that is to create 
trust and rapport um, with our patients so that they are more likely to follow recommendations from the doctors like Medicare or, or medicine adherence, um, uh, nutrition, proper nutrition, um, exercise. And, and by doing that, we're able to um, be profitable, but at the same time, uh, improve the, the health of our patients. So we like to say everyone wins uh, within ChinMed. It's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a wonderful way to go about doing medicine. And it's a culture where I oversee um, the, the service portion of our patients. So I'm kind of responsible for uh, developing the framework by which we meet our customers and serve them across all touch points. It's, it's been an amazing, amazing year and a half or so that I've been with ChinMed. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing the story and how it sort of all unfolded for you there as well. And I'm sure you've got, uh, plenty of stories through there, but going back to the book, uh, we jump into sort of, uh, purpose statements and, and you go through sort of the organizational founding, uh, CEO purpose statements. And I'll read a few of them out. So just to jog your memory, you talk about Walt Disney and Walt Disney is to create, create happiness by providing the finest in entertainment for people of all ages everywhere. Um, talk to me a little bit about Walt Disney and, and how it all kicked off for him. Could you talk about a little bit about, uh, Walt in the book? Yeah, I think um, he he was the type of person that was uh, that just inspired others to be the the best version of themselves. You know, I think all of us that have had had the opportunity to go to a Disney property have experienced the meticulous nature of the service that they provide, um, from the visual to the the sights and the sounds and the smells and everything is done with the the customer. Uh, in mind, the guest in mind. And it reminds me a lot of, of the meticulous nature of Ritz-Carlton and how they are just adamantly all about um, addressing all of the sensory aspects of the, of the customer, guest experience, patient experience, whatever you want to call it. It's, uh, I, I think uh, Disney has earned this kind of notoriety as a beacon of, of excellence. Um, and, uh, it's, it's certainly been a, um, a company that I've benchmarked and, and watched from afar for many, many years. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And, um, I'll read some of the other, uh, purpose statements out. So the, for the Ritz, it's to provide the finest personal service and facilities for our guest. Uh, for Starbucks with Howard Schultz, uh, he writes to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup and one neighborhood at a time. And last, uh, Apple Steve Jobs, this is interesting, this one, is to make a contribution to the world by making tools for the mind that advance humankind. Tools for the mind, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, you think he makes tools for the hands with the iPhone and all the other products, but more for the mind. Uh, talk, us, um, yeah, talk to me your thoughts on, on you know, purpose statements uh, from CEOs. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, purpose statements are... are um aspirational in nature, right? You're never actually there. You, your culture has nev will never actually attain what the words on the page say. And so that, that stretches us to continually uh, improve our processes, our experiences for our patients and our employees. Um, I, I think um, having a documented written purpose statement, again, 
you, you can memorize it. It's it, that's one thing, but you have to get it on paper, and then you have to inspire your people to live it out. You have to model it out from the top down, um, and and it's a uh, it's a game changer when people can, in their own words, articulate why they do what they do. Uh, it's important. I, I don't know if you uh, remember Simon Sinek. He he talks about why, and he says many organizations can tell you what they do. Uh, many can tell you how they do it, but not a whole lot of organizations can articulate why they do it. And to me, that's what the purpose statement's all about. It's like, at the end of the day, um, we don't want to just uh, pr- uh, develop or, or go through transactions with our, with our customers. We don't want it to just be transactional. We want it to be transformational. And I think a purpose statement helps you achieve that. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, for those listening, playing at home, uh, whoever you work for, see if you can find out what their purpose statement is. Um, I've uh, got a history with Mercedes-Benz and their purpose statement is the best the best or nothing. Um, really simple, really easy to remember, but it, it is true. Um, going through chapter two, you also talk about excellence and I'll talk about some of the notes that I took. So you talk about, yes, your experience with Ritz Carlton and obviously what their expectations with excellence. So from their vantage point, they talk about you manage processes and you lead people. Now in, um, in second place was never was never good enough. Uh, mediocrity was unacceptable. You also talk about excellence was never a choice. It was a business mandate. Can you talk about a little bit about that? Yeah, and I'll, I'll talk about a couple of those. I, I think you, and I actually uh, remember Horst Schultze, who was the president um, of Ritz-Carlton, one of the founding uh, president, say that uh, you don't manage, you manage processes and you lead people, which I think is a really interesting point. And, and I talk about in the book, the difference between kind of managing and, and leading. Uh, but it's so true. We, we don't manage people. We manage things. Um, but we, but we lead people. And, and our role as leaders is to, is to take our people to achieve what they would not normally achieve are to do what they would not normally do so that they can achieve what they would not normally achieve. So I think that's really, really powerful is, is we think about managing the operation, which is true, but you, you have to more than anything, you had to lead your people um, to go where they would not otherwise go. So I think that's really, really important. Um, and, and some of the other ones that you mentioned too, um, uh, give me a couple of other. Uh, you'll have to remind me of what I wrote. No, that's okay. No, no stress. It was make, making excellence a, a forever thing. Um, you're talking excellence was never a choice. It was a business mandate. So it was it was from the get go. And I'm sure that when anyone came into the organization, they knew that you know mediocrity was not not acceptable. That excellence was the bar. And if you couldn't meet the, that that, then you weren't the right fit for the role. And that's a great point. You know, everyone, we try to be very, very careful about who we bring in in the organization, but it's not a perfect science. Some people are going to make it in that are not a good fit. But the, the good news is, is that, you know, it's in the best interest of the, the person that it's not a fit, as well as the organization, that um, if there's not an alignment there, it's time to, to move on. Um, and, and I think great organizations don't hesitate to make those decisions um, because it's actually a disservice to the employee uh, to not uh, have them move on because they're not going to they're not going to be the best that they can be if they don't 
follow and align with the organizational mandates. Well, it's actually if, if organizations can't let people go as well and, and don't have not only the the legal requirements, but the the balls to, to let people go who are dead weight, that's actually bad for business as well. Um, moving on, chapter three, you talk about uh, building a, a crafting a legacy. And one of the things like some of the notes I took from the book where you talked about performance over here and dignity over here. And in the middle of those two is inspiration. What, what do you mean by that? Performance, dignity, and in that intersection of the two is uh, your inspiration. Yeah, so think about it. There are some organizations that are that are 100% performance driven, right? And so it's all about performance. If you have to throw your fellow colleagues under the bus, or if you have to kind of navigate or straddle that unethical versus ethical, you're, you're going to do it because you're going to hit your numbers regardless. That's kind of uh, demoralizing uh, for employees, and it's certainly not the type of organization I would want to work for. And then on the other side, you've got organizations that are all about dignity, and there's certainly nothing wrong with dignity, but dignity at the expense of doesn't really matter how well you perform. Uh, we're going to reward you. We're going to um, provide you with the same level of benefits and recognition that we do for a high performer. Either one of those two extreme can be really damaging to an organization. So in the middle is 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 kind of the sweet spot um, where the performance and the dignity come together to create uh, a situation where um, you're rewarding and you're also holding people accountable in a really powerful way. And I think at the end of the day, if we're all honest with ourselves, we want both of those things. I, I talk about reward and recognition. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. People want to be rewarded, but reward without recognition is um, demoralizing, um, and recognition without reward is kind of hollow. And so you you want both of those blended together. So that's that's what that graphic was all about. Yeah, thank you for unpacking that. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, I've worked in organizations where you might be rewarded uh, privately, but publicly you want to be recognized by your peers, not not by your superiors as well. Uh, we're probably going to run out of time, but we can just touch on some of the other chapter topics be, uh, before we take off. Is Chapter four, you talk about teaming and, and nurture collaboration and creating an environment of well-being. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the, there's a great study in there. I talk about um, Project Aristotle, which was a, uh, a project that uh, Google launched on, I think back in 2012. And, and they're huge, obviously. They have lots of teams within Google, and they wanted to understand, like, what was the secret sauce? What what made organizational teams really perform well? And and they they did all kinds of research with their internal psychologist and um, scientist, and it was really hard to figure out. It wasn't what you would expect necessarily. It wasn't the smartest team members made the best team, or the ones that had previously worked together or the ones that liked each other necessarily. At the end of the day, there were a number of things that drove it, but above and beyond everything else was, was what they call psychological safety. It's an environment where people feel safe sharing their views, their ideas, their disagreements, and they don't feel like there's gonna be some retribution for doing that. And, and so organizations like to talk about how innovative they are and, and how creative you squelch all of that if there's this underlying fear that what I say, if it's against what the rest of the organization or team is saying, 
um, is going to be somehow negatively viewed. Um, and so that creating an environment as a leader where your people feel safe to share their opinions is, is extremely important. And so that's one of the things I would point out there is, is just the importance of really vulnerable, authentic uh, teamwork. Yeah, nothing, nothing. Teamwork makes the dream work, as they say, without, uh, we, very simple. Um, so we are going to run out of time and I'm going to, we've only gone through a quarter of the book. So I'll leave the rest of the book for the audience to go out there and to, um, to read the book. But before we take off and talk about where they can find the book, yeah, in the book about talking about Ica Guy. Uh, realizing uh, your ICA guys is most often achieved at the intersection of four primary elements. You know, what you love, which is your passion, uh, what you're good at, which is your talent, uh, what you get paid to do, which is your career, and uh, last, what the world needs from you, which is your purpose. Do you have any thoughts about that? And um, yeah, I, th- I thought that was really nice about finishing the book with talking about your ICA guy. Yeah, I love this concept of Ikigai, and I, I kind of came across it as I was trying to figure out how do I um, how do I land the plane on on the book, and you know, it's it's this concept of like you said, bringing together what am I really good at, um, what can I get paid for, you know, what are other people is it something that other people would need, and and when you when you bring all those into the into that thing that you end up doing then it really doesn't become work and work actually works. It begins to work when you, um, when you find something that you're passionate about. And so I love that concept and, and the, um, the, the countries, there's a couple of really small countries that have implemented that concept of Ikigai. And it's interesting, those people end up living longer and are more happy than practically anywhere else in the world. Um, and, and I think uh, it's because they are they are doing something that motivates them, and they realize it's bigger than themselves. Yeah, you, that you talk about uh, Okinawa in the book is the where they live. Uh, the most people that live to a hundred is is because of that. Uh, but we're out of time. Um, tell my audience and people listening there where they can find the book, where they can buy the book, hold it up again. Uh, what's the best place they can reach you? Is it a website or social media as well? Sure. So you can obviously get it on any of the. Um, let me make sure I'm getting this in the yeah, right place. Yeah, no, we can see any it of now. the um, uh, online uh, typical avenues: Amazon, uh, BarnesandNoble.com. You can also find out more about me or purchase the book on my website, which is simply Jamie J A M E Y dot Lutz L U T Z dot com. Um, but would love to hear from you. I also have a, a Facebook um, on some social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. Um, would love to connect with anyone that um, either is, is, is living in their, in their purpose through their organizations or is looking for uh, resources or tools on how to, how to do that going forward. Perfect. Jamie, thank you for being a great guest on the Best Book Bits podcast. And to my audience out there, yeah, follow Jamie, buy his book, check it out. It is amazing. Once again, Jamie, thanks for being a great guest and uh, I'll speak to you soon. Okay. Thanks very much, Michael. Appreciate the opportunity. No problem at all.